You are listening to The Thriving Lawyer with Kathleen Brenner. Are you a lawyer who's feeling burnt out but you want more in life? Do you want to live a purpose-driven life that is filled with more meaning and joy? A life where you can absolutely thrive as a lawyer but not at the expense of everything else that is important to you? If you are, you've come to the right place. I'm a lawyer, a coach, a dreamer and a change maker. My mission is to help you grow and thrive, to embody your values and strengths as both a lawyer and human being, and to expand what is possible for you so you can create a more joyful, fulfilling and impactful life than you ever previously imagined possible. Today I'm interviewing Megan Dyson. So Megan lives in Adelaide where she operates her sole practice as an environmental lawyer and policy consultant. She has more than 25 years experience advising federal and state agencies across Australia on management of water and natural resources with a special focus on water law and governance in the multi-jurisdictional complexity of the Murray-Darling Basin. Megan was engaged by the Australian government to help design and draft the Water Act 2007, the Murray-Darling Basin Agreement 2008, and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan 2012. She continues to advise on implementation of those instruments. Other areas of work include water law and policy outside of the basin and natural resources management generally. In 2020, Megan decided to finally pursue her long-held passion for health and nutrition, and by 2022, she'd written and published a book on healthy eating habits and completed a cert for in nutrition. Mother of two young men who are both still at home, Megan enjoys her spare time gardening and working, walking with her husband and the family dog, Caesar. She's reaping the mental and physical benefits of a now three-year twice-weekly yoga habit and has also recently taken up jiu-jitsu. Welcome, Megan. Hi, Kathleen. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to have you, and I'm really excited to have this conversation today. It's been a long time coming because I've wanted to have it ever since I heard you speak about your um, your book and um, tips for lawyers probably a year ago now. So super happy to have this um, discussion, but why don't we just kick right on into it? Mm. Um, so, Megan, What's, you know, really evident is from that introduction is that you are such a highly experienced lawyer and you've now created this um, career where you're working part-time as a lawyer and running your own practice, um, as well as being, um, you know, having written this book um, and being a qualified nutritionist and author, you know, it's quite an unusual combination. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how it all came about. Uh, it is an unusual uh, career combo, I guess, but it's surprisingly well matched, you know. Um, I think as lawyers, our mindset is very much, you know, search for truth in strong foundations, uh, I think. And, um, you know, that world of health and wellness is just rife, I think, with misinformation and deceit. And that's some things that really, really irritate me. And um, I, I can't bear it that people take advantage of others' ignorance or their quest for health in the way that's happening. And, um, you know, maintaining a healthy body composition is the single most important thing we can do to avoid, you know, chronic uh, health conditions later in life. So um, in spite of that, it's just become this complete playing field for dishonesty and something that really irritates me. And I just thought, you know, 
just don't need all this obfuscation and self-interest. I can do better than that. Um, so nutrition has been, you know, a long-held interest and I'd say even passion of mine for, you know, at least 25 years. And I just eventually, I guess, um, the ideas for the book have been rattling around in my head. But with work, as you'd appreciate with a lawyer, there's always another job. And, oh, when I finish this, when I finish that. Um, so COVID brought around a slight lull in my work in as much as I didn't have to travel to see clients anymore, which was fantastic because uh, most of my clients are interstate, not in South Australia. So it cut down on a lot of travel time. And I thought, you know, I do have a bit of time to get serious about this. And so, yeah, I just sort of launched into writing. And before I knew it, I had a book. <laughs> and um, from there, you know, started massaging that and um uh, you know, fiddling around with what the focus and structure of that would be. And, um, yeah, so it's been an evolving thing. But I think although completely different from law, law has been a fantastic foundation for, you know, heavy scientific research, writing, communicating, all those things. Was there a trigger? Like you, what's very evident there is that change in COVID and there was that expanse of time that some of us were able to experience in that. Um, but, you, you know, you talked about the, the misinformation essentially that is out there around this area. Was there sort of a trigger point or something that, that happened that where you were like, right, this is it, I, I have to kind of take this forward? Yeah, it's funny you should say that actually. So, um, my husband was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disease, about 15 years ago. And so that meant that we, um, you know, suddenly were thrown into the situation, really understanding well what eating carbohydrates does to your body and the types of strain that we put on our body when we eat the wrong sort of foods and make you realise we are just not built for a high GI you know, high sugar load. So there was that going on in the background. So I've become really quite knowledgeable and done a lot of research, but I was walking through the city with a friend of mine who's also a lawyer and she has long been discontent with her weight and she's, you know, goes on diets and reads books from time to time. And she said, oh, I'm sick of those books where there's just all that guff, you know, there's this, this storytelling and the, you know, I wish they'd just get to the point and someone, I wish there was a book that just told me what to do. And I thought, you know what? I am no storyteller, but I can certainly write clearly and I can tell people you know, how to cut through the noise. It's pretty simple, you know, and um, I thought I can do that. I can write that book. Um, and so that's when I started putting together material which evolved into a book and I thought, um, yeah, I can do that. So it was that moment of a friend's frustration with years of, you know, buying the misinformation, the guff and the single solutions and the celery detox juicing thing, um, that really spurred me into thinking I can do much better than that and actually help people with sensible advice that's science-based, non-fatty and uh, is going to work in the long term. Mm. So we'll get into it a little bit later in our conversation in terms of the, the direct tips and, and ideas for lawyers. But I'm really interested in this idea myself. With, you know, in fact, it's the whole rationale for the podcast and the the um the coaching that I do is this idea of the the thriving lawyer. And to me, that means a lawyer who's thriving not just as a lawyer, but the rest of their life, which is where what you're doing is so interesting. And even before we get to the, you know, the the actual, the subject matter of, of the food and the diet, it's even interesting to kind of consider 
what you've just told us around how you how you have complemented your legal practice by going into this nutrition space. Um, and more and more when I am talking to people, I do hear examples of these kinds of, like I think a great phrase is a portfolio career where you start to, you know, you have your areas of expertise, but you don't just stick to, you know, one area of law because with this recognition, I think that the more interests and skills we have in the different ways to serve that it can actually increase our satisfaction and our own well-being ourselves. Yeah. I'm just interested in in what thoughts you have about that and how writing the book has um, impacted you and your own kind of um, well-being. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the study of law and the practice of being a lawyer does actually have a lot of synergies with non-legal activities. Um, you know, we are critical thinkers, we write, we communicate, we read, we search uh, for meaning and, as I said, solid foundations. And so those those skills and interests um, can flow over into completely different areas, such as the nutrition. And yet, you know, uh, obviously good nutrition makes a healthy person, a healthy person is going to make a healthier lawyer. So there's, there's a great deal of crossover, but pursuing this um, side is has really helped me embrace and really get to enjoy the creative side of my my personality, which previously was really only expressed in gardening, which I love. You know, teaching my children that sort of thing that's a creative um, endeavor. But you know, after thirty years or more of writing legal advice, which of course I always you know it's pragmatic, it's helpful, it's well focused, but it's you know it has to be said it's dry. To be able to write creatively for a completely different audience about something that I'm really very passionate about was just a wonderful, a joyful, creative, um, exciting time. It was it was great. And that the only difficulty really in marrying up with my legal work was that I do tend to get completely immersed in what I'm doing, whether that's a legal job or researching and writing about nutrition. So I had to really, when I was writing the book, segregate my days very clearly, right, you know, 7 till 11 in the mornings, that's nutrition, after 11 until, you know, however long it takes, that's my sort of my day job. Um, so, yes, the two things are synergistic in a sense, but I can't, I can't contain those two completely different topics in my brain at the same time so I've had to segregate my day but um, from a personal perspective yeah it's brought me a great deal of joy uh, creativity it's been it's great yeah so what's really clear there is you know the fact that our rational skills all those skills that we have in our lawyering can have that direct impact but on the other hand you know there are real challenges and obstacles when you're trying to pursue um, such, you know, still very different fields, as, as you say. Um, in terms of, you know, dividing that kind of time and being quite disciplined in, in where your focus is, what other suggestions would you have for lawyers who are trying to grapple with perhaps an interest that they have themselves? I mean, I'm certainly interested to hear because it's a key challenge I have with my own coaching work um, in terms of being able to prioritise and achieve what I want to achieve in both, like when, when my lawyering is so demanding too. Yeah, 
look, <laughs> there is no easy answer to that. And I think um, most lawyers are only too, you know, intimate with that sense of having far too much to do and not enough time to do it. So often, you know, very complex work, particularly, you know, you and I work in government. The work is sometimes it's highly political. It's always time pressured. It's frequently very, very complex. When you work in an interjurisdictional area, you know, it's even more complex and more political. So it's not easy uh, to scrape time out of that sort of agenda to do something for yourself. So my tip really would be after, you know, 30 years of lawyering, it took me too long really to try to carve out that time for myself and say it really is important for your own being, even though you might identify extremely as I did and still do with, you know, being a lawyer and and being the person that requires, being the perfectionist, always being right because, you know, of all the professions, <laughs> you know, we are paid to be perfect. We are paid to be perfect every time. And it's exhausting and stressful. And I think we really need to give ourselves a bit of grace, not in our legal work, but to scrape out time in non-legal endeavours to allow ourselves to not be perfect and not be right all the time. And um, I guess my tip would be it's really worth, it's worth it. It's worth it's worth doing that. And I think um, we need to have the confidence that it really is worth cultivating the non-legal side of who you are. Absolutely. That's one of the things I've talked about quite a bit. And in fact, um, I think the very last episode that I recorded was all about our identity as lawyers, because I think we have a tendency to um, hold ourselves and hold our identity so fully as lawyers that it can crack crowd out the other endeavors yeah um, thank you for that because I think it's also important to kind of acknowledge those perfectionist tendencies and I would just add into that too that one of the problems that you face is that standard that perfectionism the standard is always just above where you are no matter what effort you put in and so <laughs> it's an ever-moving target that I think is one of the actual challenges that we need to be addressing as well in, in the profession Absolutely. That's a really good um, observation, actually, that that perfectionism, it's always just slightly out of reach. And you just, that continual striving um, and never meeting it because we keep raising our own expectations of ourselves. You know, it's a good thing for our clients, I guess, isn't it? Um, but yes, there is that, that expectation, I think, from others within the profession and very much from from ourselves, within ourselves. Mm. So moving on from those kind of challenges, you know, you've really, we've now kind of really covered off the challenges and benefits though of kind of taking this um, approach to your career and how you spend your time now. But I'd like to move on now to the actual book um, and, um, you know, you, you've, you've already touched a little bit on what led you down the nutrition path because of the frustration of your friend and the, the misinformation and guff, as you, as you kind of said earlier. Um, but I'd love to hear a little more about that process to Five for Life and the overall philosophy and principles that, that underpin it. Mm. So I guess the ideas, as I say, started developing, you know, in a reasonably concrete form, maybe you know, five or so, five or more years ago. And I was thinking, 
why is it that so many people around me are developing, you know, a very unhealthy body composition and their, their, you know, their health trajectory is not, you know, a hopeful one. It's not a healthy one. What's going on here? People from, you know, all walks of life, um, but around my age, I mean, what, what's going on there? And it didn't take me long to observe that I, I eat in a different way from other people. I don't eat the same things. I, I have a different mindset about food. And I've been on a diet um, and I started thinking, you know, it's not obviously, it's obviously not just what we eat, um, even though that is the focus of all these diets and all the talk is on what you eat. And obviously that's important, but it's not the whole picture. You know, we are how we are now, the sum total of all of our habits through our life. Uh, no one uh, develops an unhealthy body composition overnight. It's a, something that occurs over many years as a result of habits and you don't change habits by going on a diet. And there's a lot of research showing how dangerous diets actually are, both physically and mentally, in the longer term. They're very destructive. You know, dieting is about um, deprivation, you know, loss, punishment, self-loathing. You know, so many very, very unhealthy things go with dieting and the mindset that that can generate. Um, and it it was clear to me there's there's other things. So it's not just what we eat. It starts with that um, a, a mindset or an attitude. You might call it a relationship with food and eating, if you like, but an, an, an attitude towards yourself and the place that food holds in your life, food and eating. And so the, the philosophy um, that underpins Five for Life is very much, uh, you know, a holistic one because being a healthy weight or a healthy body composition, really, um, being healthy is about um, changing the way you think about food and eating. And I distilled that down to five key areas, you know, hence five for life. Um, and the first one, as I think I sort of have alluded to, is the right mindset. And you might call that the right reason, if you like. So um, our relationship with food, often that's not even at a conscious level. So First, that first principle of, of Fire for Life goes into delving into really identifying uh, what is the, the issue for each individual person. Why are they overeating or eating for the wrong reasons, eating the wrong food? What, what's going on deep inside? But also challenging um, conceptions you have about what you should look like. You know, we have very deeply ingrained in us um, directions from societal norms about what we should look like. That's not necessarily healthy for everybody. So it's really important to inquire deep within yourself to see what are your, what is your sense of self? Uh, what part of your, you know, body image is connected with that? Are your are your thoughts valid or have they been put on you by other people or by society? So that, that's the first um, part of healthy eating is that healthy relationship with food and with your own body. The second one is what I call right time. And, um, you know, you've probably heard about circadian rhythm. It's been out in, you know, in the media quite a lot now since I published the book, funny enough. But when I did publish it, I realised there's an enormous amount of um, research. I'm an avid breakfast eater and I don't eat late at night. And there's a lot of research, good, solid research, starting from about 2003, um, evidencing that for optimum health, we need to be eating earlier in the day. So 
not late at night, eat, bring, you know, to bring all of your eating forward a little bit so that you're having breakfast and finishing eating early in the evening. And in fact, having about 80% of your intake before about four o'clock in the afternoon. The studies are solid on that. But the funny thing is it takes about 17 years on average for clinical research to make its way into clinical practice or into mainstream. It's a hell of a long time. Wow, that's so long. I mean, taking that as average is, um, you know, difficult. I mean, there have been some examples like HIV, um, AIDS, you know, research and and therapies were very quick um, because of the imperative behind them, similarly, of course, with, with issues around COVID. But in the general mainstream, that's how long things take. And then, so it's been interesting for me to see since my book was published, there being quite a lot in the media about the importance of eating in sync with your circadian rhythm. So that's your internal body clock. Yes, your body does know what time it is right down to the minute at a cellular level even. So yes, it does know what time it is when you're eating. And our circadian rhythms drive our metabolism, if you like, they regulate the hormones that that regulate metabolism, metabolism, sorry. So it's very important to eat at the right time. And, you know, at a very broad level, that's early. Eat early, don't eat late. And there's, you know, a whole chapter in Five for Life about eating at the right time. The other part of eating at the right time, eating when you're hungry and recognising hunger. We frequently don't eat because we're hungry. We eat for all sorts of reasons. And that is fine. It's not a bad thing. But it's likely that when you eat, eating when you're not hungry or if you don't stop soon enough, that extra um, energy intake is going to be stored as fat. You know, that's not necessarily a disastrous thing, but it's setting you off on a particular trajectory, which uh, may well end up being an unhealthy one. The third uh, part of the five is the right food. And of course, yes, what you put in your mouth does matter, but it's far simpler than what we're led to believe, because of course, you're not going to, you know, sell your celery juice or your supplements or your crazy weird diet um unless you say you know you've got this single solution it's about what you eat it, you know what you eat is important but it's simple it's much simpler than uh, any you know diet booksellers are going to have you have you believe and basically it means you know a lot more vegetables the right amount of good quality protein for your own body weight and there's specific calculations around how much that is enough good quality fat and i'm talking about fat from vegetables uh, fish, nuts and seeds, less, much less of the seed oils. Um, plenty of um, fibre, like a lot of fibre, that uh, most people have very fibre deficient diets these days. And so overall, when you look at that big picture, it means whole food, real food, more of that and less, much, much less of the processed and ultra processed foods. That's it. It's not complicated. You can be vegan, vegetarian, you know, omnivore, Mediterranean, whatever you like, um, as long as though that focus is there and plenty of veg, the right amount of good quality proteins, good quality fats, plenty of fibre, that's it. So the fourth area is uh, the right drink. So drinking is often sort of left off to the side. Most people aren't drinking enough water and there's a lot of studies about the importance of drinking sufficient water and that means until your urine runs pale, you know, to be blunt about it, that's going to vary between individuals, you know, depending on weather and activity levels and other factors. But it's around three litres a day and lots of people are not having anything anything like, like that. Uh, eating, uh, Drinking the right sort of drink also means not drinking 
not drinking your calories. So don't, don't go drinking juices, soft drinks, flavoured milks. You know, all of those types of drinks have a significant amount of um, added, you know, energy, excess energy. But also, I hate to say it, the sugar word, you know, there's a lot of sugar, which is, is not a healthy thing. Um, and that this principle about Five for Life also looks at caffeine intake. Caffeine can be good, mm. but it also can obviously disturb sleep and raise cortisol levels. So it's something that is very beneficial, particularly when you're a lawyer and you've got you know, time pressures, but, um, you know, be wary about it. Alcohol is the other one, of course, you know, um, it is technically a poison that our body tries very hard to rid from our bodies as soon as we ingest it. Um, but, you know, I do drink myself and it's um, something to be aware of, you know, in a healthy eating um, approach is to really moderate alcohol intake. The last of the five is eating the right way. And that means eating mindfully. So we often gob, well, you know, gobble down our food, wolf down our food because we're in a hurry. And, you know, I've spent far too many lunches at my desks, breakfasts at my desks, you know, dinners at my desk. Um, it is not a healthy way to eat. Um, it does tend to make us eat faster. And there are a number of studies showing that um, leaner people tend to eat slower and larger uh, people carrying a lot more fat are tending to eat faster. So it doesn't mean that every fast eater is going to be carrying too much body fat. It doesn't mean every slow eater is going to be lean. But when you look at risk, and lawyers know all about risk, the odds are that if you're eating fast, you're going to be putting on too much body weight. There are all sorts of reasons, both psychological and physiological, for that. And I go into those reasons in my book. So I know this sounds really, really gross, but chew till it's smooth. Um and also be mindful and you know, take, take a moment to consider where your food came from. You know, if you eat animals, as, as I do, consider that, um, you know, a life has been given up for what you're eating. Although, you know, that might sound overly dramatic. That's the truth. And it pays for our mental and physical health to consider where has our food come from. Um, the other part of mindful eating is just simply the physical act of seeing, smelling, feeling the texture, the taste of our food and really paying attention to it as we eat it. And we can't do that when we're, you know, doing our emails at the same time or eating too quickly to notice. So they're the five principles for, you know, healthy eating habits and they form the first sort of five chapters of the book. The remainder look at uh, other factors that affect our, our health and our weight. But that's the gist of the approach. It's very much a holistic one um, trying to engender a healthy relationship with food, which plays such a central part, you know, in our lives, obviously. You know, we we eat to stay alive, but we also eat as a social function. And eating should be a joyful, non-threatening, non-stressful activity. Um, and that's what I hope to, you know, achieve through the book. Wow. <laughs> that, is, that is such a great... No, there's absolutely so there's absolutely so much in there, and you know, as you were going through that, you actually triggered a whole lot of memories. I've spent a, a lot of time um, studying and 
um, living in Italy. And what struck me from what you said is, you know, over there, people are obsessed about food. Food is talked about so much. Um, people seem to eat a lot because they, you know, the courses through the through the lunch and the day, they probably don't get breakfast right because they do have a sweet tooth in the morning. But overall, that aside, um, what what I noticed when I was living there was this reverence mm-hmm. and an understanding. And it, there was often that thoughtfulness because there was the emphasis on the quality of the ingredients, the freshness, the food. So even though there was a huge cultural component and often a lot of food, it didn't seem like there was much overeating going on. Um, Does that resonate with you, that kind of observation? Like it seemed like it was really healthy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And when you do, you know, have an attitude of reverence, as you put it, towards food, and that deeply social part of it, you're going to be tending to pay more attention to cooking, which means you're using whole foods. And that's absolutely at the core of the what to eat part is eating whole foods. So if you're cooking from scratch, as you know, what you've described, people who revere their food, they're actually making it and paying attention to it. It's far more likely to be whole food. Having come out of a packet, it's not processed, let alone ultra-processed. And that's a very, very healthy way to eat, both mentally and physically. Mm. So, you know, the other thing that struck me from the explanation of the five principles that you just gave, thinking about lawyers was the fact that, you know, so often there is this, you know, the work deadlines or or the feeling that we should actually be stuck at our desk, even though all the research shows that if we actually just got up at lunchtime, took the lunch break, got away from our screen, we'd probably be, apart from being a lot healthier in terms of what we're eating, but also have increased well-being because we've actually had the break plus increased productivity because all of those, that productivity actually flows from doing those other things right. So I'm I'm curious about it because I see this as a key challenge. Like I see lawyers so often who won't leave their desk because they feel guilty as if they're not doing their job properly or somehow meeting professional standards for even taking half an hour to actually get away from their desk and eat properly. So from my point of view, I think that that's a key barrier. I'm just curious to you as to how you see that and the challenges that lawyers might have and how we can perhaps try and challenge that and actually create change for ourselves yeah look that is absolutely um a key challenge is um it's a so there are two parts that one is the reality of if you've got a trial on tomorrow and you haven't finished your prep today you probably don't have time to get up from your desk what you say about increased productivity is absolutely right but if you literally have you know 40 items to complete before tomorrow morning at you know 10 15 there's no other time to do them except between now and 10 15 tomorrow so so there's that and um when that happens and i've been there and i'm sure you know many of your listeners will have been there too it's horrible and sometimes you have to accept that's going to be my life for a couple of days but it, it does mean planning ahead for those times um and making sure that you've got at least evening meals or breakfast or lunches, meals prepped so that you, if, if you do end up having to eat at your desk, at least you're eating something. So meal regularity is really important. On the other side, of course, it's cultural. It is very, it's a cultural thing when you say, well, you might 
you know, have been working all day on something that's pretty tedious and boring, and you know you've become less productive as the hours have worn on, but the culture of your office might be such that you don't have the freedom to think, well, I'm, you know what, I'm actually going home right now, or I'm getting up from my desk and I'm having an hour's break, I'm going to go do some yoga, I'm going to go for a run or a walk around town or whatever. Um, so that cultural thing really needs to be tackled. And, um, you know, another really interesting area is research into what's known as the obesogenic environment and a collision that I see coming in the next five or so years between that and work health and safety laws. So employers are obliged to ensure that their workplaces and work practices are safe and not increasing risk of harm to their employees. If you are operating a workplace where the culture is that there won't be meal breaks, um, there are chocolate bars in the kitchen to keep caffeine and sugar levels high to give you that, you know, shove along. Um, I think that over the next few years, we're going to see that obesogenicity in the workplace really come to the fore and employers being forced to take some responsibility for workplaces, work design, work practices for industries like law, but of course also those that require shift work, um, particularly overnight shifts. I'm thinking here specifically nurses. My son is a paramedic and the shift work and the conditions um, are reasonably good, but in terms of meal breaks and accessibility of quality food in the workplace, there's zero of that. So you have what you've brought to work with you. And if you haven't, too bad. It's a Kit Kat from the cafeteria uh, with an iced coffee. Now, we know that eating that sort of food at any time, but particularly at night, where it really plays havoc with your circadian rhythm, is where a lot of um, chronic disease will begin. Metabolic syndrome is extremely high in shift workers. So that legal office culture is going to have to give way and it may well be given a push along by the requirement to manage risk in the workplace and specifically risk uh, for occupational health and safety. So, um, mm. yeah, those time constraints are very real for lawyers and the stress um, of that, of course, as well. But we have to do better because... Um, you know, you see people who've been in this industry for a long time, and if they haven't taken careful steps to look after themselves, the default setting is that they will become unhealthy. They will develop an unhealthy body composition. 70% um, of, of Australians now suffer from overweight or obesity. It is an epidemic, and in most of those cases, it leads to metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cardiovascular issues, general ill health. So, it's out there, it's looming. And I think we, um, you know, we really need to start thinking very carefully about changing culture in the workplace. Yeah, it's so good to hear you say that because I think too often with this kind of issue um, and well-being generally, it's very easy to put the onus on the individual. And of course, you know, I'm a coach and you're writing about nutrition and we're giving individuals tips and ideas to think about in order to change their own behaviour. But I think it's really important to remember that this is part of that cultural context. Um, I mean, there are, I think that it means for like those of us 
you know, if, if you are a lawyer who is managing others or you're a GC or you're, you know, even the mentoring kind of arrangements or even just purely by example, there are responsibilities and abilities to change that culture too. Um, but it has to come from the leadership too because if it's not coming down from there, then um, everybody else is not going to feel safe in that environment. Absolutely, absolutely. I have a colleague who was at a training day um, and they sent me a photograph of the morning tea and lunch offering. Okay, so this was an all-day, you know, nine-to-five sort of training event. The food was appalling. Like It was absolutely appalling. We're talking croissants filled with, uh, you know, cheese, uh, enormous muffins, um, pies and pasties, for heaven's sake. It was a really appalling offering for professionals who were there all day. Now, that sort of food, not only is it likely to make people feel sluggish, hungry, a little bit ill and slightly vague, if, if that's the culture in the workplace, that that type of food is okay to feed your staff, it's a real sign that something's very wrong there. You know, we need to do a lot better. So moving on from kind of that cultural aspect then, Given, you know, you've set out the clear kind of principles that can serve people very well in keeping them in mind and kind of guiding their eating. I'm curious, though, as to what you think are still some of the biggest misconceptions that are out there um, and how we might um, navigate through the noise a bit more clearly. Um. That's a really good question. I think maybe the biggest misconception is that it's complicated. You know, people say, oh, it's so confusing. It's this thing, it's that thing. It's no carbs or it's lots of carbs. You know, it's it's actually not complicated. Um, so that's a misconception I would like to clear out with my book. It's not complicated. As I said, you know, in terms of what you eat, you all you really need to know is eat food in as close to its natural state as possible. You know, that's pretty much it. Uh, remembering to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're not, you know. So that you would have heard of the, the GERF movement, just eat real food, you know. I think it's something that was around a few years ago, but it still rings, it still holds true, you know. So that's a big misconception. There's a misconception, I think, that's um, unspoken, not explicit, and that is that it doesn't matter too much. I'll be okay. Um, I'm young. doesn't really matter. Um, I'm fine um, and as I say the default setting in Australia today in most of the so-called developed world is towards overweight and obesity that is our default setting that's where we're going if we're not struggling against the tide of food advertising manufacturers ultra-processed food obesogenicity in the environment, like the work environment, home environment, our environment generally is encouraging or forcing or making the default towards becoming unhealthy with chronic disease due to overweight and obesity. So I think there's a misconception that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. It does matter and it's worth doing. And I think for lawyers in particular, it's important to keep your eyes up on the horizon and think, look at the bigger picture. It does matter choices you make today have a very real impact on your ability to lead a healthy life later on. I know for young lawyers listening, you know, so what, you know, later on might be years away. Well, it's not because daily habits have 
a cumulative effect. You know, they're like a, a needle playing in a record player, and that's probably not a good analogy for young people, but that's what they're like. That you know, you're <laughs> going in a row, you know, digging the groove. Um, in a, in a way, you might call that karma, but things you do today and things that you repeat, they become your destiny, if you like, they become your fate. So look carefully at what row you hoe, uh, you know, where you're going, um, where your your simple daily habits are going. You know, do you have sugar in your coffee? Do you have a, a weekly pizza, you know, pizza night habit? You know, uh, because those tiny habits are taking you in, you know, in the wrong direction. Another misconception, which I don't, I hope it's not common anymore, is like, don't go dieting, don't do fad diets. You know, severe calorie restriction is really unhealthy for you physically and it's unhealthy for you mentally. There was a great study um, report on a few years ago, which followed a group of people out of um, one of the biggest loser contests it, uh, where they, you know, they cut your calories right down below your basal metal, metabolic rate, which is a really stupid thing to do. You will lose weight quickly, you know, over the course of the show. But your basal metabolic rate, so the rate at which you burn energy, will fall dramatically. So in the people who have followed up six years later, they were still between 30 and more percent below their starting basal metabolic rate, which meant that if they lifted their poor little heads up above, you know, had a piece of cake or, you know, cheese and biscuits, well, there you go, there's your daily basal metabolic rate, you've blown it and you'll be storing that as fat. So dieting, restrictive dieting is a really bad idea. So to listeners, please don't do it. There are far better ways to, um, you know, foster a healthy relationship with food and eating, enjoy your food, enjoy the act of eating, enjoy the social side and still be very healthy with a, with a healthy um body composition so you know steer away from fast food fried food ready-made food cook as much as you can from whole foods or you know hope that a member of your loving family might be doing that for you don't skip meals so a lot of people have jumped on the intermittent fasting bandwagon thinking that's a great idea plenty of studies are showing that the only way in which intermittent fasting as a rule is helping people to shed excess weight is simply because it's an easy way to restrict your calories. So if you say, oh, I'm only going to eat for you know six hours a day, there's physically only so much food you can really take in. So you tend to take in less energy. But if your eating window is late in the day and you're eating late at night, so you know, from common one is I'll eat from midday to 8 p.m. Your overall 24-hour blood glucose control is much poorer and the amount of fat that you oxidize as an energy source is actually much lower than if you ate breakfast. So if you want to have an eight-hour fasting window, that's absolutely fine. But the misconception is it's fine to do that from 12 to 8 p.m. It's actually not. It's, it's bad for blood sugar control. And that blood sugar control is the absolute everything when it comes to whether your body will be efficiently burning energy or whether it's laying it down as fat. So bring that eating window forward and eat from, you know, eight till four or eight till six, you know. So that's a misconception I see around quite a lot. So uh, breakfast skipping is not a smart idea and eating in an eating window that finishes, you know, 8 p.m. is not a smart idea either. There's so much in that. Um, beyond the misconceptions around what we should be doing. But I'm curious, 
Is there anything additional that you could add in terms of the practical steps to help us have more of the plant foods, to be more mindful, to be eating at the right time? Um, particularly in light of, you know, we, we, you gave a great example of the litigation lawyer before who's got the trial and just, you know, has, has to be pre-preparing. But, you know, how do you go about doing that so that you're well prepared at, at those moments? Yeah. So... The, and this, this is an area where lawyers have a natural advantage, okay? We are prepared, we're organised, we're planners, so uh, we apply all of that discipline in our work life, don't we? Um, so the trick is just to bring that same discipline to bear uh, in your personal life, knowing that it really does matter. It matters today for the type of health you'll enjoy later in your life. So you know you've got a trial coming up, you're going to... Um, you know, if you if you eat um, meat, you're going to poach two kilos of chicken breasts. You're going to cut them into eighty gram or so portions, whatever's the right portion for your size. If you're a bigger person, you need a bigger portion. If you're a smaller person, you need a slightly smaller uh, portion. Having said that, though, uh, each meal should comprise no less than twenty grams of protein. So, if you're having chicken, for example, that's about fifty grams, sixty grams of chicken. It's going to give you twenty grams of protein, but you know, um, and you put them in the freezer in individual portions. Frozen poached chicken takes about two seconds in the morning, 10 seconds in the microwave to um, thaw. And if you're really <laughs> squeezed for time, and I have been here, you grab a carrot, a handful of cherry tomatoes, a chunk of your frozen chicken, and a half a cucumber, and you can eat that at your desk. So that is a, you know, a one-minute meal. So be confident that it is possible to eat whole food um, without having to, you know, when you're extremely short of time, boil eggs at night before you go to bed, have small cans of tuna in your desk drawer, along with kitchen paper towels so you don't go spilling everywhere. I know I've done that. You know, luckily we're mostly paper these days, but, you know, I have had the odd accident. Nuts, you know, eating raw, unsalted nuts and seeds are great, um, high protein, high fibre, high good quality fat snack to have on hand. Um, that's a really valuable thing to do. Fruit, of course, whole fruit. You know, don't do juicing, please. But, you know, whole fruit, apples, oranges, pears, you know, whatever you enjoy. Um, little tubs of yogurt, unflavoured, can I say? Little tubs of, you know, unflavoured um, cottage cheese or another one, cheese slices. So there's plenty you can do. But if you didn't pack them the night before and take them to work, they're not going to be there and you will get up off your chair and you'll dodge into the kitchen because that's as far as you've got to go. And they'll have those horrible little boxes there with Kit Kats and jelly snakes. And that's what you'll eat uh, because you're hungry and you need that sugar hit. So for the time-pressed lawyer, I have been there. I have done that. And it means bringing to bear a degree of discipline uh, into your daily life beyond what you apply to your actually, you know, your job. So caring for yourself is essential. You know, if you're in poor health, you're not going to be doing the right thing by your client either. You know, what if you, <laughs> you know, fall apart through, you know, getting sick halfway through the trial because you haven't been eating properly. So, you know, that seldom happens. And I know we soldier on anyway, even if we are sick. But um, caring for yourself is essential. And I think it's something we push to the side far too often and think, I'll do it later. Well, you know, often there isn't later. And for some people, there is no later. So 
there's no reason why you have to, you know, oh, I'll do it on Monday. I'll start when the trial's over. There are small things you can do right now. Have a drink of water right now. You know, um, you don't need to suddenly turn into a healthy eater. I think that also is the misconception. Just like you're not going to go on a diet, becoming a healthy eater isn't something that you suddenly take on as a huge project. It's incremental. You know, go through the book, you know, it's a bit self-serving, but my book's got lots and lots of small, what I call habit helpers, small things that you can do right now, today. And you just chip off a few of those. And already you're changing your trajectory just slightly um, and beginning to form a healthy habit. You don't need to chuck all the unhealthy habits straight away. So um, just pick a few things. It might simply be have two glasses of water when you get up off the off your off your seat to go and boil the kettle or um, you know, go and speak to a colleague, that sort of thing. Thank you. That's there's absolutely so much there and definitely a few things that I am going to experiment and try myself. So where can we find you? Where can listeners find you online or get in touch with you if they'd like to? Yeah. Um, so online I'm on LinkedIn. So LinkedIn um, as five for life, that's five, the digit for the word, life, the word. Um, also the same, fiveforlife.me at uh, Instagram and Facebook. Um, the Instagram and Facebook, I try to post, you know, a few times a week. And they're just little quick bites, you might say, just small, helpful hints to remind you about the things that um, you could be doing right now, you know, today. If you follow Instagram, you might be lucky enough to see my wise dog, Caesar, who's full of, you know, amazing advice about nutrition. I never knew it could come from a dog. And he's quite photogenic. Uh, so I, I post clips of Caesar's um, pithy advice now and then. Um, and to contact me, um, Megan at fiveforlife.com.au. Um, you can contact me through um, through the website on that address or just, just on the email address. Um, sign up to the free newsletter. I send that out every four to six weeks, covering an, an interesting current topic in nutrition. I try and keep them light and humorous. So, yes. Excellent. Thank you. If you for yeah, extra help, just get in touch or um, yeah, definitely buy the book. Um, I will definitely put the links in the show notes so you can find them there. Um, and so, you know, as we wind up, one more question, Megan, which is any final messages that you want the podcast listeners to go away with? Mm-hmm. Um, I think keep your eye on the bigger picture that's all you know um, uh, you know there's no need to um, make massive over overhauls you're looking at your long-term health it really matters um, don't go delving down into the you know don't end up down a rabbit hole with your celery juice or whatever you know keep keep your eye on the horizon and believe that it does matter you know looking after yourself matters you know, more than anything, really. Well, thank you. I think that's a beautiful note to end on. And um, such a pleasure to talk to you today. So thank you, Megan. So lovely to be with you, Kathleen. Thank you.